But yeah, man, the, the, the oh wait, it says you can't access the video. Oh, there we go. It's recording. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, man, the graffiti here in Milan is, uh, I mean, it's some top level stuff. I mean, I really like the graffiti in Miami too. Um, like mm -hmm. as far as, you know, like it just seems like high quality and it's everywhere. And, but that's how it seems in Milan too. Like there's like a lot of high quality graffiti a lot everywhere, but it's, I mean, it's like, I don't know what the word for it is, but the way like that it gets painted over so fast. I mean, it, we've just been here for a week and I was walking down the street near where we're staying at admiring some amazing graffiti and yeah. then today we were walking down to the park and i'm like oh man that one piece that i loved is getting covered up right now and there was someone over there covered and they actually covered up with something that didn't even look as good as the first Ooh. one yeah that's like, like, oh no that's not cool i was like and there was other prime spots too you know and uh that's one of the things i was wondering uh, about you know like you would probably know more about that it's like how what are some of the ethics of graffiti of like you know covering up people's pieces. I mean, cause obviously some of it's not as good of a quality, you know? And so it's like, maybe you could cover up that and make something better looking, but what's, is there like some sort of ethics or a code like I mean, honor among graffiti artists? Yeah. The unwritten rule used to be that you don't paint over anything unless you put something better on top of it. The problem is though, a lot of these walls that have become popular are like legal walls, walls that just, they, they, uh, local municipalities or whoever allow anyone to come up and paint. So you got all these people, you know, you might have 50, 60 people in town all trying to buy to paint on that spot. So somebody will put up a really amazing piece and you'll have some little kid come by after that and paint over it. It's just, you know, it's the femoral nature of, uh, of the art, I guess, of the walls and so forth. So are there places like that in Austin, Texas, where you're, where you paint at, where they have like, areas reserved specifically for people to go paint graffiti so they have uh so there's a couple businesses in austin that uh have big walls retaining walls and so forth on the property or next to it and that'll allow people uh you know graffiti arts and so forth we've gotten permission to go paint there as long as we you know we don't create a public nuisance or litter or leave our cans around and so forth um we used to have a really famous one in austin called the hope gallery which was essentially a series of walls that were on top of a hill near the downtown area. And it got to be so well known that there were people, it was kind of a destination spot. So people from out of state or out of town would come to the Hope Walls, take photos of all the art that was, up, um, you know, do art themselves. Maybe they'd paint a little piece themselves or even just spray paint their names like they were here. And it was a constant, uh, you know, covering up new art, so forth. So it was very kind of fluid and, uh, uh, eventually it got to be so much, I think of a distraction or that the land became so valuable that they closed the Hope Gallery down. Um, and now they, you're not allowed to, to paint there anymore. And I think they're transitioning it into something else, but. Do they still so have this? Yeah, I, th I think what it is too, is a lot of it um, has become a mixture of graffiti and street art or like muralists that do, um, uh, like stencil arts and things like that. So you see a lot of that mixed in with one another around town. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of uh, murals around Austin, not all of them graffiti though. So a lot of them have come in with the street artists or the stencil artists, uh, the graffiti artists, um, the, the ones that still know or will still paint walls that they're not technically supposed to. Uh, but there are some free walls that are, that are uh, we're able to go to and so forth. So I know we talked about it a little bit last time, but maybe we could uh, visit it again. Is 
what exactly is the difference between graffiti art and, and like and then street art? Because I know there's a little bit of a difference between the two and some subtleties to the terminology. So what is the difference between those two? Um, I'm not sure that there's an actual definition, but essentially it's the style of what mm-hmm. you do. So graffiti art is a, has a particular style, obviously. It's the lettering itself, um, the kind of characters that are used and so forth. I, I think of street art more as something that, um, like I said, like stencils or like traditional paintings, things like that. Maybe it conveys uh, a political message. Maybe it just conveys, you know, a, a lot of them say, you know, uh, talk about love and, uh, you know, humanity and, um, and positive messages and so forth. Whereas graffiti is really more about most of the time is about that particular artist. So that artist is writing his name up in his particular graffiti style to get fame or to get well-known. Um, and that's what he writes. That's his name. Uh, now we do get commissioned to do pieces. I just got commissioned um, several weeks ago to do a piece for a, a place called Lone Star Skateboards uh, down in Bastrop, Texas. Um, so they paid, they paid me to paint a mural there. And I did, you know, my, my name's like a signature on the bottom, but I'm not painting my name in the letters and so forth. But most of the time when we're doing graffiti, it's like our names. It's our lettering, mm-hmm. it's the style, and it's the overall look of that. I think graffiti would actually fall as a subset of street art. Mm-hmm. So what exactly does graffiti mean to the artists who are painting it, to the people who are making it? Um, I think it means different things to different people. I think a, a lot of the people that I know that graffiti artists came into graffiti art as a way to sort of have an outlet artistically maybe they didn't want to follow the traditional artistic path um you know they didn't want to do you know water watercolor landscapes or oils or, or things like that maybe there was something about the graffiti that they were seeing in their particular communities um, maybe they were coming from uh, you know marginalized communities and so forth where that was most of the art that they were able to see uh could be they had family members that did graffiti there was just something about visually the graffiti uh that they saw that they were drawn to. And also it was an outlet for them to be able to maybe get a name for themselves. You know, like they start writing a name and they get better at it and they start painting it around town and people come up to them and say, Hey man, I saw your piece over there. That was really cool. They kind of build a camaraderie and then maybe they get together and, and go piecing together. You know, one person meets another person, then they go paint together and so forth. So I think it's a kind of a mixture of just the style, uh, the the quest for fame trying to be somebody in a world where everyone tells you you're not um and uh even maybe just the community aspect of it yeah i mean i i I, that makes a lot of sense with 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 especially the the part where if you're coming from a community where it doesn't really feel like people are telling you you're going to amount to stuff the odds are kind of stacked against you it doesn't really feel like you have a lot of ownership um i watched a really good since we last talked i watched a really good banksy documentary on youtube it's a uh, the um have you heard of the channel perspective they do a bunch mm-hmm. of art documentaries bro yeah. it's worth checking out it's uh it's called like uh, the banksy interviews or something and it's like a two and a half hour documentary by these people who um there's a good bit of documentaries out there but this one was by far my favorite and they kind of go into how uh like banksy and all the people where he came from were influenced by the people from New York. And so they give like a little brief history of how the graffiti came up in New York. And they were talking about how the kids didn't really have a sense of ownership. And so like, there was that community of like, 
where it was like a kind of like an inside joke with all of them or like an yeah. inside thing where it's like, I like, I, I write my name in this style where nobody else could know it's me, but the only other people that know it's me are the other people who are playing the game. Mm -hmm. And so like having it in more difficult to access locations or more, you know, like things like that, that's like more cool points within the community. And so it's like, look, I got my name there. And that way you walk around, you're like, oh, that's my wall. That's my sign there. That's my mm -hmm. train. And so like, it starts to give you like a sense of ownership and like a sense of place in your community for people who may have otherwise felt like they didn't have anything. And I think that yeah. that is something where, um, you know, that that's actually probably solving a problem for those children is that they, especially whenever they were young is to like, to not, to come from maybe a broken home and like where the odds are stacked against them to where they're like able to have some sort of sense of ownership. But then they talk about the downsides of that is, you know, although there was some people who are being able to make this great art, um, it was getting out of control to where eventually in New York, it got to where they were just painting on like residential buildings and like, they could like, they couldn't stop it. Like it just got so out of control. Graffiti was literally everywhere. Yeah. And um, I mean, it's not really like that in, in some places, like there's a lot of places where they're kind of like have it under control now, you know, like most cities have their own ways of doing with it. But what other than, you know, we talked about how there's, there's cities where they could have like certain areas blocked off where it's like this area could be a space where you go do, go do graffiti at. What are some other ways that cities could handle that problem, I guess, of like over graffiti or like graffiti in places where it's, I guess, maybe inappropriate or like places where it's actually decreasing the value, not increasing the value of the land? Yeah, um, I, I want to touch on one thing you said, though. It's kind of an interesting dichotomy in a way that um, when these guys in New York started painting, you know, especially the subway cars and the trains, um, they were painting something that the whole point was to go around the entire area. The, the the reason why they started doing subway cars is you can paint a wall in your neighborhood, but it's never going to get past your neighborhood. Uh, mm. You paint a subway car in New York and it's going to run around the city. Um, so there was, you know, they were creating art essentially for themselves, by themselves, for themselves and for their particular community that they were in. Um, however, here was an art that was going around the entire city that was almost uh, like a public piece of art even though a lot of people didn't know what it said. I think in the beginning too, a lot of people didn't because they didn't know what it meant and because it was so new and because it was being done illegally, um, you got so much of a backlash from it. I think as time has gone on, um, graffiti itself as an art form has become more mainstream. And, I, and I, I, I do acknowledge that a lot of it has been brought about that way because of street artists, the legitimacy street artists have brought in you know, being hired by ad agencies and so forth like that. People like Banksy, uh, who've become, uh, you know, very well known and so forth, uh, cause people like that. And I would argue that Banksy's not a graffiti artist, um, you know, as like a artist or not, but, uh, as far as, um, actually curbing the, um, the problem of graffiti, I think you have to look at it in two different ways. Uh, one is there's like tagging and throw ups, basically people that will just tag their names. I would not consider that to be graffiti art, even though technically the term graffiti would mean any mark that's made, you know, on a wall, but mm -hmm. the graffiti artists themselves would not say, Hey, that guy's tag is art. Um, and a lot of what you see on, uh, on these, you know, people's fences on the sides of churches, uh, things like that are tags. 
uh, stuff that I that most graffiti artists wouldn't consider graffiti. As far as combating that, um, I think there's a couple ways. I think most cities have realized that if they give these kids spaces to paint, that a lot of time they'll be spending their time at that place rather than going around the city painting where they shouldn't be. So that's one avenue. Um, and, and you can't just do one pronged approach. I mean, it's got to be a multi-pronged approach to make any sort of dent in the issue. Um, another is that uh, businesses uh, and um, you know city outlets and so forth like that actually uh, make it a priority to paint over the stuff when it gets painted on there. So if somebody throws up a tag and it gets painted over right away, um, you know, that person's probably going to come back. It's going to go back and forth two or three times. That guy's going to say, oh, well, I'm taking this personally now. Now I'm going to get my name up there as much as I can. But after like the third or fourth or fifth time that it gets painted over, they, you know, they'll probably move on and move elsewhere. Um, and, and then I think another thing, too, is really just um, trying to have and I know it's kind of difficult, but trying to have a, an older generation the older graffiti artists talk to some of these kids and let them know, Hey, this is cool. This is not cool. If you want to go paint on these illegal retaining walls, you know, at the bottom of this hill outside of a park that not a lot of people know about, you know, go paint there. Don't be painting on the sides of people's fences. Um, don't be painting on the sides of buildings. Um, really yeah, just especially buildings that uh, business would businesses would be in maybe like the abandoned buildings that makes sense because mm -hmm. it's already ugly you know and so putting the color there is going to make it beautiful uh, you know it's going to give it some personality and i think too when uh like a lot of the businesses in austin um there there are several or more than several there's quite a few that have uh, hired artists to paint murals on the side of their buildings and it's always been a big thing in the graffiti community that you teach the younger generation do not paint over murals or art um, if there's a mural on the side of the building, a beautiful mural, you're told, don't go over and tag that. If you do tag that, someone along the way is going to find you and kick your ass. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's one way as well. If you're putting up beautiful art around town, then not only are you raising the bar for the other artists, you know, I don't want to go paint my ugly piece of shit next to that beautiful mural. You know, so you're raising that bar a little bit and then you're also giving them less space to do this. Um, there's always going to be an element though. You know, there's always going to be that element, that dumb kid, somebody that just wants to put his name on everything. You know, he's going to jump up and do it on highway signs. He's going to uh, put it on the sides of businesses and buildings. As far as I, I'm concerned, businesses and stuff like that, you know, I'm not going to sweat too much. Somebody throwing, you know, a, a little tag or something on the side of Chase Bank, but you know, somebody's house, Somebody that, you know, like a hardworking blue collar worker that pays for his house and, you know, tries to take pride in it and so forth. Don't, don't, don't tag his fucking fence, man. It's just, yeah, just don't do that. Yeah, because oftentimes they don't really, they probably wouldn't have the money to keep covering that up over and over again, like something like a banquet, you know? Um, yeah, it's just, you know, I think it's a lot of it's common sense. I think uh, the graffiti, you know, started really coming of age in the 80s. And writers like myself that started writing in the 90s, I was born in the late 70s, but started writing in the 90s, um, learned from a lot of those guys. So before the internet and things like that, it was handed down essentially, um, you know, from one artist to another, the older generation to the younger generation, and they would school us. They would say, hey, look, here's how you do it. Here's ways to write things. Here's places you can go. Here's what you can and can't do. 
And I don't think nowadays there's a lot of, of the older artists really telling the kids because I think a lot of these kids are picking it up on their own off the internet and so forth. There's no, uh, you know, authority figure. There's no mentor figure to say, look, paint here, but don't paint here. And here's why. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah that's that's it's, it's weird because it's like in different cities I've noticed after doing some travels and like, you really opened up my eyes to graffiti and I started like paying attention to it more. And now I try to pay attention to the, the subtleties of how the graffiti works in different cities. And I've noticed like, uh, like in Miami, the graffiti is mostly located on the buildings that are like boarded up or the places that are out of business, the places that are in business, they normally put a good quality mural up there and that does enough to stop the graffiti. Mm -hmm. um, now Florence, we, that's where we were just at. They don't have, they have a little bit of graffiti and on like some of the old buildings and stuff. But what they have is like all these little old shops. They have these garage doors that come down every yeah. top of the shop. And it's really cool because the graffiti somehow is limited to mostly just the doors. And so the buildings of the brick, it's like, I guess that gets painted over. And so they know that like the safe spot is on the, the door. And then you even notice some of the shops started catching on. And so they're like, why not just hire somebody to paint and they'll put a mural there that it would be kind of like in the theme of whatever their business is. And then that one kind of like almost sets a standard for everything else on the street. Mm -hmm. And so like they have like a weird little way and I don't know, it probably happens somewhat organically, somewhat planned a little bit of mixture of both, but, but they have like a lot of like kind of like a similar way, but man, here in Milan, it's like almost all of the nice murals have graffiti on them, like tags over top of them. Like, really? like I was looking at some of the pictures of like on Google images of like pictures from last year of this area. Cause there's some really nice murals and there's some like really high quality work that a year ago, perfectly clean, fresh. Mm -hmm. and, and like today walking down the street, you'll just see tags bombed all over it. And it's like, man, that was a nice, and then there could be like a blank wall, like right around the corner. It's like, what the hell they covered? Cause like, luckily, I mean, I don't have any wood there. I think it's like fake wood to knock on. Nobody's graffitied over or like tagged over anything that I've done out in public that I know mm -hmm. of so far. But, um, man, that, a, I feel like that was, yeah, that probably has to do something more with that sort of community that's there in Milan and what's being done as far as the older generation, the younger generation, or what um, they're accepting of and not accepting of, um, because that sounds like that probably wouldn't pass very well, at least in Austin, most of the places in Texas, and probably most of the places in the US. Yeah, it's, it's really surprising to see. And it's, it's kind of disheartening, because I'm like, it makes it hard for there to be lots of high quality stuff, especially on the outskirts of the poor areas of town. Now, mm. like in the pristine downtown areas, you know, they'll try to keep it really clean. And so like, they're probably much more strict about enforcing it, but on the outskirts of town, it's like, uh, it's not very well enforced. And you see all these really nice pieces that are, um, that haven't lasted very long at all. And it's like, Oh man, that's kind of, sad. I don't know how they would, how they would go about fixing a problem like that. I mean, as far as enforcement, uh, at least from what I've seen, there are, you know, there have been police units. I, I know back in the 90s, they had a, a subsect of the Austin Police Department gang unit that focused specifically on graffiti art and graffiti writers, which we're not, we have nothing to do with gangs. Mm -hmm. um, but I think they didn't know where else to put them in the department. Uh, but they had, you know, a couple guys that their focus was on uh, finding out who, 
you know, tagged or did graffiti on what name, trying to catch them doing that, um, catch them at certain walls. You know, they'd set up stings at certain walls, um, you know, at night and they'd wait for maybe some artist or somebody to show up and then they'd, you know, pounce on them and write them tickets for loitering or something. Um, but basically, you know, it's, uh, it, it's kind of up to each independent police department how much they enforce, at least from what I've seen though, cracking down on it and trying to increase enforcement might work in the short term, but it doesn't really work overall. I think what ends up happening is you get, um, it's sort of like when you take something and make it, um, uh, you know, illegal or you make something, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like you're not supposed to do it right. That you got a whole bunch of people to say, Oh, wow. Now I want to do it. Cause there's the thrill. Yeah. So, I'm not it sure that it's like a whole underground market for it then, you know, and mm -hmm. as opposed to the place where you could go do it legally, you know, there's not going to be probably, it's probably not going to be so tied with illegal activity. If just the act of painting on the wall itself is made illegal, you know, I think, yeah. And, you know, the police can do what they can do. Um, transit authorities can do what they do. I think like you're saying, I think when it ultimately comes down to the, the shop owner or the, the, the Joe citizen or whomever, um, I think, you know, if, if they're giving these kids an outlet of places to paint, that'll help on us on a bit. If, uh, you know, I've got a business and it's perpetually getting tagged. Maybe I say, Hey, look, maybe I find one of these kids or I find somebody that does murals. And I say, Hey, would you paint a mural here? You know, a, here's something that'll draw attention to my shop. Here's something that shows what my shop's about. And maybe this is a potential way for me to curb some of that graffiti and some of that tagging. Will you ever curb all of it? No. Because there's always, like I said, going to be those kids out there, they're going to do it. But when you see that mural, when you see something that's a really nice piece of art, even if you're, you know, some young kid just coming up that all it wants to do is get their name out, you're going to see that and say, well, that's pretty good. If I'm going to paint next to that or near that area, I want to do something that's going to be equally good because I don't want that to outshine me, you know. So I, I definitely think there's value in doing that. Yeah, it could uh you know, that could inspire people to if they see the higher quality work. Another one of the things I was thinking about, too, is if it's if you have areas where it's legal, where people can do it out in the daylight, mm -hmm. then that also allows for them to take their time and make higher quality stuff. You mm -hmm. know, like if it's something that you got to throw up really fast, then, then you know, they might not have enough time. But I mean, there is, a, a I guess, a benefit to to making art fast because then you could learn how to make good art fast, you know, mm -hmm. but, uh, but also allowing people to have the time with it. And say, for example, the store owner who has the artist come in and people see him out there painting all day and he's not getting harassed because he's doing something that's actually benefiting the community. Then it's like that, that also sends a good signal and adds a, a positive, sheds a positive light on street art and graffiti. Mm -hmm but then it also allows the, the bar and the standard to be raised of the quality of work that could be out in the neighborhood. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask your opinion on like, I guess the different like misconceptions about graffiti. Cause I, I you know, I've read some articles, read some articles online and it could like the the public opinion on graffiti could be so far in different extremes. It could be like, um, like I've read things like graffiti encourages crime and riots to where, Graffiti adds color to otherwise oppressive gray neighborhoods that are forgotten and that need a form of expression and that actually brings value to the community. And so like mm -hmm. there's people who take really extreme sides on both ends, like really for it, really against it and really for it. 
And I was wondering, I guess, what could be some misconceptions that the public could have about graffiti and maybe what's some things that, that people don't understand about it and are there pros and cons to it? Well, I think one is you do have to face sort of the obvious, which is if you're doing graffiti illegally, that regardless of whether you can appreciate the art or not, for a lot of people, that's going to be a um, like a bellwether. You know, if, if it's uh, if it's illegal, regardless of pretty or not, for a lot of people, that's still going to be wrong. Um, yeah. as, far, as far as graffiti itself. Um, What was your question again? <laughs> Sorry. I guess like what would be the pros, like the, the pros and cons of, of having graffiti in the area. like, as yeah. far as like some people would take the opinion of like every, like just, they would think it's all nothing bad. And some people would say it's nothing but good. And I guess, you know, how would you sort through that? Like what would be some pros and what would be some cons of that? Yeah. I mean, I think like anything, it's in the eye of the beholder. Um, and some graffiti is a lot better than others. Some art's a lot better than others, you know. Um, I think a lot of it is, uh, at least from what I've seen, a lot of this urban uh, revitalization and so forth, where they've taken uh, what was previously sort of these decaying areas and kind of put money into them and turned them into um, the kind of these trendier areas. We've got several of those spots here in Austin. When they do that, they like to bring in a lot of color and they like to bring in a lot of art. And they like to make things kind of hip and current. And right now, uh, graffiti art is kind of in a renaissance, street art, graffiti art, and so forth, where, um, you know, major advertising companies are using graffiti art in their pr products and promotions. Uh, you see a lot more of the, the art around town. Uh, the ubiquitous angel wings painted on the side of, uh, of buildings so people can do their, you know, their Instagram selfies and so forth. Um, I think it's a way to beautify a lot of areas that necessarily don't have that. Um, I think a lot of people are saying what used to be uh, architecturally, um, you know, pretty or provocative or whatever you want to call it. Um, now we've just got these plain buildings that are all these sort of uh, modernized styles of two ice cube trays stacked on one another. And then people are saying, hey, how can we beautify something that's pretty much just a big square? And I think graffiti or art in general, murals and things like that, really give that uh, a, a lot of, um, are, are able to do that. Um, as far as areas, you know, in, like I said, you kind of have to make that distinction between art, graffiti art, and so forth, and the tagging, the bombing, the throw-ups, uh, which, which are basically like quick letters with fill-in inside, so forth, that aren't necessarily art. I do think that that can be detrimental to community. I think that uh, enough of that in a community can uh, wear on people, can give a, a, a false, you know, a, a narrative that that community is in decline or that the neighborhood's not good or so forth. I think it just depends on what kind of art it is, where it's done and what it's done for. Yeah. And so you said something earlier on that, that maybe that the police department in Austin was, that was dealing with the graffiti was the gang unit. There is an uh, like a somehow a little bit of an overlap of the tagging and all of that with marking of territory, the same way like the graffiti artists or the same way like a business would want to put up an ad for their business, the same way a graffiti artist would want to put up uh, the, the tag to, for their name, um, gangs would go about and mark their territories. So like how is there ways to distinguish of like whenever you see graffiti or someone who's like, they go to an area and they've not really seen graffiti before. And the first thing they think is like, oh my God, I'm in an area with gangs. When maybe yeah, that might not be the case. 
you know, it can be somewhat hard for the layman, uh, somebody that doesn't really know what they're seeing or what they're eading. Um, now, obviously, you know, I can read tagging. I can read graffiti. I, I look at something on the wall. I can know exactly what that is. Uh, most of the time, the, the gang stuff that you see is going to be tagging. It's not going to be graffiti murals. It's not going to be graffiti art. They're not interested in being artists. They're interested, like you said, in marking their territory and basically telling people to stay away. Um, and a lot of that is, you know, whatever name they go by their nickname, and then it'll be marked with something like Roman numerals or it'll be marked with something, you know, something street, or it'll have the, the name of their gang actually in there, letting you know that this is their territory. Um, and you can't even have areas that are high, high gang areas, you know, out in East LA, um, you know, all around the country, really, that are high gang areas that have legitimate good graffiti in them, not done by the gang members, but just happen to be in those areas. And it's important for us to distinguish between the artists that painted that and the gang members that are doing the tagging over here. It's not the same person, not the same people, and they're not in any way, shape or form affiliated. Um, but to answer your question, it's, it's difficult sometimes. It's, it's, it's hard. Yeah, I mean, it's hard sometimes someone could like one one person who does it in a, for a, a bad reason could give the rest of the people a bad image for the public, especially for someone who might not know much about it. And then they'll just write off the whole entire thing altogether. And then just, you know, like so, some old lady in the neighborhood would be like, we just need to outlaw it all, you know, and just get rid of it and not have any of it. I think it's sort of how we and, and what we term it as being. I mean, do you want to? Are we going to say define our terms as graffiti is anything that is written on the wall and spray paint? Are we defining graffiti as anything that is art? Tagging is one thing. Graffiti is art. Um, how are we defining our terms? Because you could also look at um, you know uh, church bombings, anti-Semitic uh, graffiti from you know, Nazi groups and so forth like that, where they take spray paint and they write something really disgusting on the wall. Um, you know, a lot of even people that we see that are anti-abortion that'll spray paint a message on the side of Planned Parenthood or something. Are we considering that to be graffiti? I mean, how are we defining our terms? I guess is my question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of subtlety to that. Like I wondered about like with, we were talking about like that political message and stuff, you know, that's kind of how Banksy kind of came out and like, you know, I guess he wasn't necessarily the graffiti artist. He's more of a street artist. He did like a little bit of graffiti style stuff. But it was more of that, like, but he had like these kind of, I guess, neutral political messages or whatever, where it was like, like jokes that were easy to get by the general public where it's like all the general people were, were in on it, you know? And like, so, but, and that was kind of like one of the ways that he became famous was like, I guess, social commentary or political commentary or things like that and i think stuff like that is actually that did a lot of good uh, at least from what i learned from the perspective documentary about him it's like that did a lot of good for graffiti because it it opened up people's eyes to it and like especially once he started getting into christie's and sotheby's and those major auction houses i mean as much as he was playing the jokes on them that that the world started taking it more seriously and then now it's like the most popular style of art in the world now. And it's like the biggest, mm -hmm. fastest growing style of art in the world. And, um, and I see more and more types of street artists who start to have a little bit of, they start to put in a little bit of political commentary. There's this guy, um, 
oh man, I wish I could remember his name. It'll, if it comes to me, I'll say his name because he's a he's like one of the most famous artists in Florence, um, and he does uh, like street signs where he'll just like put a sticker over top of the street. Like say for a, example, mm-hmm. it'll be a stop sign, and he'll put a sticker that's the exact same shape as the stop sign, the exact same color, but it'll have some sort of little stick figure or something doing something that just kind of like makes you rethink about the way that society works or rethink the way mm-hmm. about how money works or how capitalism works or, or anything like that it's not really ever too strong in one direction or the other it just makes you think about stuff when you're walking on the street and he does things with like yield signs all that mm-hmm. and, and his but he's become like well celebrated in the area and people like encourage his signs it's not like oh my god take those down they're ruining the city like the, the city actually embraced it and they're like this is actually this type of graffiti is actually like this is something that we're becoming known for mm-hmm. and um and so like adding that little bit of social and, and political commentary i think is is like an interesting thing that's that's coming about in it um was it always like when do you think that that started in in the graffiti in the history of graffiti is people doing like political commentary or social commentary about or just like more conceptual art, like type type of graffiti, where the idea behind it means something. I mean, well, really, you could go back to the infancy of graffiti. Um, a lot of these kids that, that started doing graffiti art, um, you know, came from marginalized, impoverished neighborhoods and so forth. And I think a lot of them would include elements of that. You know, they might do a piece with their name on it, but they might tag something on the bottom, you know, stop the war or, um, you know, drugs killer it could be any number of things so i think there's always been some hint of that as far as actually embracing it to the point where the message is the point rather than just getting famous um to me has been kind of a relatively new thing maybe the last uh 15 or so years uh where there's been almost a a consciousness involved in in the message um i know the guy you're talking about actually i've seen a, a lot of his work and i think it's actually really cool um you're taking an idea, uh, you know, the, the sign itself, and you're kind of reimagining it in a way that you never really thought about. And that sort of changed your perspective on what you've been looking at all this time. Um, same thing with Banksy. Um, I'm not sure I would necessarily agree that his stuff is apolitical. Um, I think a lot of his stuff does have a specific message, but I do applaud um, a lot of what he's been able to do to sort of, with one image, kind of give you a very clear sense of what the message is trying to convey, you know, just one simple image, but yet it conveys so much in your head and it really gets you thinking. And I think that is his, his power. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I like, I mean, I'm a big fan of the concept art and I like the idea of art where the biggest part of the most important part of the art is the idea. I mean, I like shiny things too. I mean, I like stuff where it's just the most important part of it is just to look cool like i sent you that one that one picture on instagram of that uh, piece that i was walking by i don't really know if i it was just like some cyborgs and outer space and some cool lettering yeah. i don't really think that that had any particular meaning behind it other than like this is just meant to look awesome and mm-hmm. you know i think that has its place too like there, it's not re- i don't really know if one is better than the other it's just more of like a personal preference of styles I don't I mean, think so. I don't think like them both, really. You know, like I think they're both as long as they're as long as they're both done well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's really like the most important part. Is like, is it done the best you could do it? Like, I don't know if that well, makes it's sense. Art for art's sake, right? 
you know, oh. sometimes it's hard for art's sake, and then sometimes there's a there's a bigger meaning out, uh, you know, that you're trying to convey, and then sometimes it's just purely uh, advertising, you know, paid to play. You're getting paid to do somebody's logo or something on on the wall. So it's kind of a mix of all of that. I think the the one common denominator though is that if it's something that is beautifully done, or if it's something that stirs something inside of you, causes you to think. Um, there's an aesthetic value to it. I think all of that counts as art, right? Yeah. Um, I don't think <clears throat> Bosch or Dali, um, you know, when they were doing their sort of really weird kind of abstract, you know, things were saying, this is a, you know, a social commentary on this, or I think that was just what they thought was interesting. And they wanted to create something that was visually um, arousing. And you can look at a, a Bosch painting and say, that is so fucking weird, but that is so fucking cool, you know? Yeah, dude, he was, he, he <laughs> Bosch was, Hieronymus Bosch was like so ahead of his time. I mean, you don't like, he was like really kind of like the first surrealist, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, oh my goodness. Uh, his, his work is something that like, whenever you look at it, I feel like you could look at it every time you look at one of his paintings, you could find something new. About, something different, like, yeah. What the hell was this guy on? Like, oh my I, goodness. I love Escher, right? Um, the, the whole perspective idea that Escher did so much of, I think that stuff is just, absolutely mind-blowing and you stare at it for so long and you're just kind of it kind of makes you think a little bit even though it's it's basically just it's there you know i don't know a better way to put it but yeah it does i mean because he plays escher plays a lot with like pattern mm -hmm. and and like perspective and he plays a lot with reflection and all of that and so like he'll have like the repeating pattern that kind of like turn it'll be like geometric but then it'll turn into animals or something like across yeah. the the page and so i mean he does some real mind bending sort of stuff but i think that stuff also is like um you know whether you could find a deeper meaning in it or not like at the end of the day it's done really good and so like as long as it's done really good then it's like you know that's that's what makes it nice and that's what uh one of the things that kind of makes me upset to see on the walls around here is like whenever there is something really really done well and it's like someone goes and, and messes it up a little bit I think, uh, you know, like for seeing people take their time and do something does help raise the bar. And I think that's one of the things that's helped out a lot. Like, how did you go and develop your style over time and get to where you start? Like, did you like you obviously had a starting point and then you're really good at what you do now? Were you were you natural at it? Did you have like was your style similar to what it is now or how did it evolve? I think you, you you sort of have to have some artistic ability to begin with, some, something to start with. I don't think you can 100% teach any particular high talent. You know, you say like Tiger Woods. Well, yeah, he took golf lessons, but, you know, he, there was already something there, you know, to start with, some clay to be molded. Uh, mm -hmm. For me, I started um, just kind of copying a lot of what I saw um, in, in books and magazines, the, the ones that were at least available to me in the mid 90s, early 90s. And so I would copy what I saw, quite honestly. And then over time, when I started to see how the letters were being formed and what you could do with them, then I started making changes to that, um, you know, to that letter, maybe doing my own little thing. And then over time, you know, doing it repetitively, you, you get better and you start to develop your own style. There's things that you pick up too. I would, you know, when I was in art classes and so forth, as far as perspective, um, 3D lighting and drawing, um, I'm a professional photographer now. So I, there's a lot of things I do, you know, lighting wise and so forth that both I learned from graffiti 
and also things that I brought to graffiti that I learned from photography. Um, and in looking and seeing what other people do, you sort of, you know, you're a product of what you see. And, and if a good artist will be able to see something someone else did and say, wow, that is really cool. Maybe I can incorporate something like that into my art. And there's a constant uh, give and take, ebb and flow, um, you know, adding to your style, uh, changing your style a little bit. Um, it's just kind of, for me personally, it was uh, learning over time, being repetitive and just time. Um, you know, I've been doing this since 94. So we're talking it's 2024, pretty much. So, you know, you do the math there. <laughs> I would hope that at this point in time, I'd be pretty good. But if I started last year, I wouldn't be as good as I am now. Yeah. So it takes time to get there. So if like someone's trying, we talked a little bit about last time too, about start, for someone starting off as graffiti, like for starting off doing graffiti, what they would do. Like, and I was wondering if someone wants to start off doing graffiti in 2024, but they don't want to break the law. Yeah. How do they do that? Do you have ideas about that? You know, it's funny. I, I think most older graffiti artists would say that being a graffiti artist or what they call a writer doing illegal walls are a part of that. Um, <laughs> but to answer your question, um, I mean, there are definitely legal walls that are out there. You can find them on searches. I mean, people that take photos in front of them on Instagram and so forth will, you know, um, tag the location. It, they're not hard to find because of the internet nowadays. It's also not hard to find graffiti art. Um, you know, almost all of us have our own Instagram pages or Facebook pages, or even our personal websites where we display our art, sell our art. Um, it's much more accessible than it was 30 years ago to be able to find graffiti, see what someone else is doing, copy that sort of learn it on your own without having to be mentored by an older member. Like most of us were, you know, back in, in, in the nineties and so forth, all you had was a handful of graffiti magazines and a couple books. And then whatever, um, your mentor taught you, you, you know, you would be interested in graffiti. You'd go to check out some walls that had graffiti and you'd bump into somebody that did the graffiti there. And then you strike up a conversation and you say, Hey, look, I'm really interested in learning. And they'd say, all right, here's some things to do. Get good at that. Come back and see me. And then he might give you his number or something. You know, and so you create a relationship, that person would teach you stuff and then you would kind of learn almost like a tattoo apprenticeship. You know, you kind of mm -hmm. learn as you went. Nowadays, kids got all the tools there through, through the Internet to start from nothing and become a good artist, basically just by looking at what they find online and, and just time getting better. So is there like whenever if you practice, is there such a thing as practicing graffiti on paper or like drawing up the plans beforehand? Like, is that a way to learn? Yeah. So any mural that most of us do, uh, we sketch it out first, how we want to lay out the mural. <coughs> Excuse me. So like, um, I got, I got a couple pieces here, right? So, you know, if I'm doing a mural, I might sketch something like this up, right? This is going to be backwards. I think on the camera, but I'll sketch something like this up. You know, and that'll have kind of my basic layout of how I want my lettering. And then oh, maybe, it, like this is the wall, maybe I'll incorporate what character I want here and then something over here. I'll have a basic sketch of how I want to do it. And um, and then I'll take that to the wall, and that'll be my visual reference for how I sketch it out. Um, 
you know, if you, if you've been doing it long enough, you know, those of us that have done it a while, we have a pretty good idea of how letters are laid out and so forth. We can just walk up to a wall and kind of lay out a design. But for me, and I think most of us, if we want to do something really good, we've got time, maybe we're at a legal wall. Um, you know, we will sketch it out first and we'll bring that, that with us. Do you ever do color studies too? Color studies? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, as, like, I suppose, as opposed to just sketching out, do you like plan out your colors? Cause one of the things I've noticed is that, um, some of the, like some of the really attractive graffitis, uh, of the, like the lettering has very complex subtleties to the color. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they're not, uh, like it's actually really, really good color. Like they, like they're not like someone who doesn't know about color. These are people who actually know about color. Like you and you can tell whenever you see it, like they'll somehow put somehow put muted colors in the background to make the brighter colors in the foreground pop, or they'll do different things with it to increase the contrast or to reduce the contrast whenever it need or create patterns yeah. with it or play tricks on the eyes. And it's like the, the color is really just as mind-boggling as how good it is in some places. 100%. Yeah, I mean, I, I know what colors I want to take with me because I have to plan what spray paint I'm going to bring with me. Um, so you've seen a couple advents, really. One is that uh, the amount of available spray paint out to artists has increased dramatically. Uh, back in the day, I mean, you basically had a choice between Krylon or Rust-Oleum and whatever colors they produced. Um, nowadays, you've got companies that sp uh, produce paint specifically for muralist artists, graffiti artists, and so forth that just have amazing colors. The quality of the paint is high. You've got both high and, and low uh, flow spray paint. So you've got high pressure, low pressure, depending on what you're trying to do. You've got different caps that you can use to change the size of the spray patterns and so forth. Um, and then you've got a lot of artists that have been through art programs and uh, you know, they've done art either in high school or taking college courses. Some are professional artists. Uh, a couple of people I know are, uh, are uh, tattoo artists by trade, and then they do graffiti art on the side. So they have a tremendous amount of art experience that way. Um, I know a guy over in, um, in, in Asia that is an architect that's a well-known graffiti artist. Um, and he's got sort of this kind of really interesting linear style. But you got people in professional positions that have graphic and artistic backgrounds that are doing graffiti now. So it's really been elevated to a very high level. Um, but as far as I go, yeah, absolutely. I'll sit down, I'll lay out my colors, what I want to combine. Um, you know, you think about things as far as when you do your lettering, if you're doing like a, a darker background, like you talked about, maybe a muted darker background, then you want the outline of your letters to be a brighter color. Uh, if you're doing the reverse, obviously you want the reverse. So you'll do like a dark outline on your letters and then you'll do kind of a bright background. So that way you've got contrast. Um, you've also got the contrasting colors if you're, if you're doing a, like a 3D effect and so forth. So yeah, this is definitely stuff that you, you think about, not just the sketch or the lettering, but you think about all, all of it. So how do you develop your lettering? Cause I mean, so I got actually, I got commissioned to do a graffiti style mural that we signed a contract for uh, in last month, and we're going to be doing it in at the end of February 2024 mm -hmm. for this uh, restaurant. And they want us to do graffiti style lettering okay. of their of their brand in there. Okay. And I already have the design made up. I'll send it to you afterwards and show you okay. what it's about. Maybe I'll get some critiques, and you could help yeah. give me some tips. But um. 
like I, I'm really curious as to like, because there's so many different ways that you could abstract the lettering and play with it. Like, I guess, how do you build the style? And then also, what are some like do's and don'ts of, of style of the lettering, if there is any, or like some like principles that work across mm -hmm. styles? Like, basically, I just want to know about building lettering, you know, like, how does that work? Like, how do you how, how does it work to build up the lettering to design it? Yeah, I think it's uh, so one of it is what is the customer trying to convey? If somebody hires you to do a mural like the restaurant um, in something like that case, I would probably unless they wanted something like a wild style or a really crazy, hard to read kind of lettering. If they're just trying to, to put their, their name up there or something, I'd probably use something that's a little easier to read. Um, that was their first uh, thing they said, too. They were like, yeah, we need this easier to read. <laughs> yeah, maybe legible. Um, yeah, I, I think with anything, you start at the basics. You start at the foundation and work your way out. I know I started with like block lettering, you know, just basic block lettering or, uh, you know, basic bubble lettering, things like that. And then you sort of pick up a style, or you sort of learn more from that and be, they become a little bit more elaborate until you get to the point where you're pretty good at what we call wild style, which is kind of the crazy, more abstract, hard to read lettering. But it's just, it's a progression. Um, I think I, we talked about it a little bit in the last uh, podcast that we did where I, I do know a guy, he's sort of one of the newer generation. He wanted to skip the easy stuff and go straight to wild style. Problem is he didn't learn the basics. And now he does this kind of what he calls wild style stuff, but it just doesn't look good. It doesn't look right. Um, when you get to a good point, you're incorporating things like, um, you want things like flow, right? You, how does yeah. that letter flow? Is it um, symmetrical? Is it, is it weighted correctly on each side of the word, the lettering? Um, is there an overall uh, theme to the lettering or the mural? Or is it just random shit thrown together? Um, so uh, there's a lot of things to really consider other than just the lettering themselves. But start from yeah. the basics. Grow from yeah. that. Yeah, I love that idea. Theme flow and one mm -hmm. of the things i'm wondering about is is the consistency of the font so like say for example if you have a t in there yeah and then you have a t later on down here does it do they normally have to be the same style is that does that throw it off to have them differently or do like if it's within the same piece should it should all the pieces be the same all the letters be the same how, how do you prefer it um, there's two ways you could do it. You could do it where they're very similar to one another. When you look at the overall piece, right, the overall image or whatever, you want it to be, to, to look like it belongs together. You don't want it to, to look like it's pieced together. So as long as the flow is maintained, you can use the same kind of lettering on maybe the T. You can also do something where I do it sometimes where I'll have, I write curse one, curse, curse one. So I might do the C and the U and then the S and the E all in the same style, but then the R in the middle, I might do in a different style and make it stand out a little bit more, you know? Um, but if you do it that way, it's still somewhat symmetrical. It still has a good flow together. You don't want to change it mid word and then have it finish in, in, in another style. It just won't look good. It, it needs to look good overall. If that makes sense. So, I, don't, I don't know if I got something that can show that uh, laying around here. 
I mean, a lot of that sounds like design, like design work. Like, you know, you're thinking about things like theme, flow, symmetry, harmony, balance, all of those things. So here's a piece. I don't know how well you can see this, but so I've got my lettering here. that says curse. Mm -hmm. And then I put one right here. So when I was doing this lettering, I purposely created open space here to be able to put one in a different style and in a different color. So it not, but it all looks once it's put together, like it sort of flows together, like it was meant to be that way. Right. Like Dude, it's not cohesion to it. Yeah. I wouldn't just do this, leave a big open space here and then put like one down here or something where it just didn't look right. So, I mean, you, you, you sort of plan it out that way. You want to throw in things there that, um, draw the eye maybe to something else you might even change something um like i will do pieces where it says curse all in the same font and then with the r in the middle or the s i will actually change the color on just that letter uh, it'll match the other colors around it but it'll be slightly brighter or slightly darker so that it stands out a little bit more but still have that flow so you can do a lot of things with it that's incredible that's awesome i love that yeah, I like that piece that you showed me too. Now, do you name those pieces or like, do they have names to them or? Um, sometimes uh, the gallery pieces that I do, pieces that I produce specifically knowing that I'm going to sell them, I will actually give titles to. Mm -hmm. um, pieces that I just sketch out for fun or that I, um, I'm actually working on a couple books that I want to put together. Um, so a lot of those will be just untitled, but it'll be showing different lettering designs and so forth for people actually learning how to do graffiti. Um, there are books out there now, uh, that older artists have put together for people learning it and I'm working on one as well, but, um, you know, it just like depends on the piece. Step. Yeah. Step-by-step. Step. Here's some different styles. Uh, you know, you can take one letter and, uh, man, I wish I had this stuff prepared for you. I would, I would show you, but, uh, uh, you take one letter, like the letter a or something, and then on one uh, board or something, I'll write that letter in 20 different styles. And so somebody learning that can look at that and say, here's the letter A, here's all the styles that you can do from it, but here's also the variations that he's doing from that letter. So here's how he's adding things, here's how he's making it flow and so forth. And there's all the concepts that you can pick up to try to get better. Hell yeah, dude. Let me know whenever you get that book out, because I'll for sure get one. That sounds oh, awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I'm sure we'll do another podcast when it comes out. I wish I could I wish I could find it here, but I just sit here and dig through it. But if you could send me a picture afterwards, uh maybe I could uh have Marley put it up in uh picture in picture here, post production. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'll, I'll see if you So I, I wanted to I was wondering about this concept too of uh like doing like because like graffiti is like it started off as you're doing an advertisement for yourself, you know, and that's kind of like the heart and spirit of it. Is that kind of like the soulless version of graffiti is whenever people do it like on the very extreme end where you're, where you're just painting it literally just for the brand, you try to remove the style from it. Is that considered that way? I mean, is, is that like, uh, cause some people, I guess would look at that as like you're selling out, you know, like you've lost what the true heart of it is for. Um, because, I mean, because, like, I saw a, a Bombay Sapphire Gin mural here the other day. Yeah. And I thought it was honestly a billboard. It was so, like, photorealistic. I thought it was amazing. And then we step up. I'm like, oh, my God, this is spray painted. That is insane. Like, you can see, like, drips and, like, little subtleties. And that just instantly made it, like, a thousand times cooler. And they had mm -hmm. their signature, like, down here at the bottom. But the building was, like, this big. 
Yeah. And I'm like, you know, that's awesome. This person's like, they're able to make a living off of that. Um, but I wonder if there's people who are not doing that because they're getting discouraged because they're like, I don't want to be labeled a sellout. So I'm going to yeah. miss out on a chance to make a living. Yeah, the, the true punks, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's not punk rock if you uh, if, if you make money doing it, right? I mean, yeah. do you want to spend the rest of your life cramming out three-minute songs in your mom's basement? I mean, I think that for any artist, you want to be able to get to a point, I guess your dream is, if you really want to do art, to get to a point where you're self-sustaining on your art. And you can't do that without some level of selling yourself or selling out at some point. Um, I don't particularly consider them sellouts. Uh, what was interesting was we, so when I was younger, we used to paint with a couple different groups in Austin. One was called Austin, uh, Alma, Austin League of Minority Artists. And we would get paid or they, we would be funded by uh, schools like the Austin Independent School District and so forth to paint, you know, big anti-drug murals or something that would go into the schools. Well, I mean, you could consider that maybe being a sellout, being painted by a, a governmental agency or a school district or whatever to paint these anti-drug rules, even though while we're painting it, we're probably smoking a shit ton of weed. But <laughs> the irony. But whatever paint was left over, we would take and then we would go bomb trains. Or, you know, maybe this guy's taking money that he makes off doing this uh, Bombay Sapphire Gin ad and he is going off and doing some illegal stuff over here, or maybe he's doing some, you know, graffiti stuff that's going to be um, less commercial, but aimed more towards the artistic gallery market or something. I mean, you really don't, it's not really my place to judge anyone else and how they're doing it. If they can, you know, live with themselves, look at themselves in the mirror and be okay with it. There's always going to be some asshole somewhere that is not as successful as somebody else. That's going to say that that's not punk rock, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense, man. I like that perspective. I mean, because I, I started off art, oddly enough, because it made me money. And I felt like that was the only job that I could work. Hold on, you started that, off making money doing this shit? <laughs> well, I mean, I didn't start off making money. Oh, um, I started okay. off doing it to make money. And like, that yeah. was like the thing, because I felt like that was the only thing I was good at and the only thing that I could do. And I didn't know that you could make money off of it. So like, I went my whole yeah. life without like, ever knowing like what I was going to do. And I just kind of felt like lost, aimless, wondering about like, what the fuck am I going to do with myself? And then it was like, I didn't even do my first painting until 2019. And I, I st started like discovering that like, oh, there's people who make a living off of it. And so I was like, that was kind of like the reason I wanted to learn is like, yeah. first off, I wanted to like, I was like, not there was like a three, like a, a multi faceted approach. It's like, I also, I want to be able to make stuff that's really good. But I've always wanted to draw and make stuff that was really good. The new thing was like, I want to make stuff that's good enough to where someone would want to pay me for it right. and trying to figure out how to do that. So I started off like doing the just like paintings or things like that, like uh, just like, um, you know, stuff that I really enjoyed. But then I found that like there wasn't that was really hard to make money off of to sell that because like I was making something that I really love, not that other people really love. And then I started discovering a couple of years later, after I did a couple of murals, that if you cater it towards the audience, then it's like, so for example, if I'm painting something for a pediatrician, paint something that they would specifically want, now I have the chance to make more money off of that. But the thing is, it's like the more you go towards that, the less creative freedom you get. And so sure. there, there really starts to get this dichotomy between the two. It's like, I got in here because I want to make creative freedom, but I feel like, you know, it's like, how much creative freedom do you want? How much money do you want? Because 
maybe you don't need entire creative freedom. It's nice to have some sort of idea. It's like, if you just say, oh, I want to paint anything, I can paint anything. You have to have some sort of boundaries. That's like, or at least some sort of, yeah. even if it's self-imposed, because you can't just like, you have to have, figure out, okay, at least I'm going to paint a person today. And I'm going to use these colors. You have to have, because you can't just paint everything onto one picture. You have to find some sort, sort of, of a, way. To yeah. It's sort of a bell curve, right? On one end, you've got, you're just starting out, you're doing art for art's sake and you don't give a shit what anyone thinks. And then you got this sort of big section where it's like, uh, you're starting to get paid for work and you're making just enough money to cover your, you know, your supplies, your art, your interest in this, but you got to kind of, you know, cater it to your clientele or whatever. And then you get the, the end where you're so famous, like your Banksy's and so forth, that really you could probably paint a dog turned pink, sell it for like a hundred grand and consider it art. So it's, yeah, I understand what you're saying. It's, it's always a balancing act. Yeah. You know? And especially with like, it's like, would I want to sacrifice all creativity, all creative freedom mm -hmm. just to make more money? And that, and that sometimes that question comes up and it's like her, I think that that really a lot of comes down to like personal journey and like where everybody's mm -hmm. at. But a lot of times I'll be like, I'd much rather make less money and have a little bit more creative freedom. Mm -hmm. But it's sometimes I'm like, Hey, I need to sacrifice a little bit of this creative freedom so I can pay the bills. But yeah. and so there is that like that balancing act, but I feel like sometimes people could give one a bad name and then they'll be missing out on a whole other side of the picture where it's like, yeah. you actually can sacrifice a little bit of creative freedom and still enjoy creative freedom. You know, well, if you're a creative person, you enjoy the process, you know, generally, no matter what it is. I mean, I think it's the same thing with all artistic forms of expression. Like, you know, like I said, I do photography for a living or tat, you know, if you're a tattoo artist, um, you, if you're getting paid to do what the client wants, you know, I'll get hired a good amount of money to go take photos for a company of their, you know, their party or their event or something, not necessarily the work I really want to do, but even going and doing that, I can find something to take out of it that maybe I enjoy doing. Maybe I bring a little bit of artistic flair to some of the compositions or something. A tattoo artist, you know, you pretty much got to tattoo what the customer wants, but maybe they give you a little bit of flexibility to include something that, is your style or something you think is a good idea. You got to take what you can when you can. And the hope is, I think that that um, for good or bad, living in a, a capitalist society allows you the flexibility to have the money to live out the more artistic stuff that you want to do by doing the stuff that you maybe not be the most excited about. Yeah, dude, I heard Will Smith, uh, I heard, uh, not Will Smith, Will Ferrell. Stay I say, if you quote Will Smith, man, I'm going to smack yeah. you. Right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard uh, Will Ferrell, uh, he had a great quote about how he chooses to do his movies. He yeah. says, I do one for them and one for me. I love Will Ferrell. Yeah, that guy cracks me up. So. Yeah, so he does like the one of like that goofy character yeah. that he knows is going to sell, that he knows that it's going to get a lot of money. And then it's like, after that, I'm going to do one. I don't care if anybody watches this movie. I'm doing this movie for me because I enjoy it. And then that one that he does for them is enough to pay the bills. I'm like, I like that. And so ever since I heard that, I always think about that for my art. And I'm, if I'll, like, I'll notice, like, man, I've done too many for them recently. I feel like I've been neglecting my own art journey. And so yeah. then I'm like, it's time to do one for me. I'm not going to make any money off of this. I just want to do something that, like, that is personal expression, you know? I, I feel like that, that idea of one for them, one for me, I'm like, that's a good way to think about it. You know? Another way of looking at it is the more commercially successful work that you do gets your name out there through other channels and avenues. 
that maybe allows you to sell more of the work that's truer to your heart. Um, I know that the more well-known, uh, especially back in the 90s, I was doing uh, more gallery shows than I do now, really. It's not really my focus right now, but I was doing a lot more gallery shows and getting more well-known, and that would lead to me being able to sell more of my paintings and work and have less people tell me what I should do. I don't know if that makes sense, but like people would buy my start buying my work because of who I was, not necessarily what I was doing, but they liked kind of my more obscure, more abstract stuff. That makes so. total sense. I mean, I don't think anybody really decides for whether they're decided or whether they're calling or, or art chose them or however you want to look at. I don't think anybody ends up an artist because they want to do what they're told. You know, I think everybody wants it because they have trouble with doing what they're told and they want to and they, they feel like they they maybe don't fit in and they need some sort of way to express yeah. themselves differently than other people. And that's the problem with that I found with commissioned work is is that uh, whether it be for you're working for a company or just a private collector or something is if you do the commercial side of it, that there's a little bit of the creative freedom that's sacrificed and that uh, I feel like I mean that that's so important is to not let that go you don't want that to tear on that thing of what you love into something that you hate you know it's like a, you would never yes. want to have it bro it's like oh my god i can't believe i have to go draw this today it's like i mean that's like that should be the dream you know there should always be something in it that, that you that's love why you have to pace yourself too it's because you can burn out if you take what you love and make it into your job you can definitely burn out oh yeah i've heard so many people who who did that and who who did started doing what they love and then they try to turn it into a, a side hustle. And then now they don't even do it for fun. They don't do it at all because they're like, it, it became it became too much work. It was too hard. And now they have a bad emotion associated with that activity. And they don't even want to go near it anymore. And it's like, man, I ain't never going to let that happen. I'll tell you, you know? what I do. Um, you know, I, because my photography is, is the way I make money and so forth. The art that I do now, I do as much for me as I do for any commercial value, I'll get hired by people to do certain things. But, um, you know, I may only draw a couple times a week or I might sit down three days straight, have an idea and just sit down and, but I'm not able to do it more on my time and my schedule as I want to. So I don't get burned out as much as I used to, which is nice. I, I think if, if, if that was my only source of income and I had to force myself to sit down, like I couldn't be a tattoo artist. I couldn't force myself to sit down and sketch out somebody else's idea day after day, time and time again. So that's what, that's what works for me. Yeah. I think that that's, that's another thing too, that, that I think that young, that, that, well, that the school system really fucked us all is they sit us down and they say, no, choose what you want to do for the rest of your life as mm -hmm. if it's going to be one thing. And I always think of it as something where it could be like, Instead of I want to do this or this, it's like I want to do this and this and that and that. Because instead of like choosing like this or that, it's like you're really just kind of like boxing yourself into like a very rigid, prescriptive yeah. life of where you know exactly what tomorrow is going to be like. And your life doesn't really have much adventure or much flair to it. And, and like how you said, you have the photography and you have the graffiti and the drawing. You have these side yeah. things that you could these little side missions that you could go down. I think that that's where you're know, like, that's a video game best played 
Yeah. The one where you go do all the side quests too, along with the main mission. Because then you get like all the juices out of life and you get to enjoy it the most going down those well, side missions. Well, that's and, like the old joke too. You tell, you know, people would ask you what you're majoring and you say, oh, art. And they say, oh, so you want to wait tables when you grow up. Yeah. <laughs> you, you get an English lit degree. Oh, so you can either teach English lit or you can work at Starbucks. Uh, yeah, I, I think that there's, um, you know, there's more legitimacy, I think, now to it, especially people that take avenues like design, graphic design. My sister-in-law is a graphic artist. She does really well. and she, she comes up with really cool concepts and so forth, but she's not necessarily an illustrator. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of avenues, architecture, things like that, where people bring in more of an element of art that are able to sustain themselves through that Um uh, you know, that occupation and that then allows them to do the art and stuff more on the side and as they seem fit and as they want to. So I, I would definitely not personally recommend doing what you love for a living. Um, yeah. I certainly enjoy the photography, but if I won the lottery tomorrow, I'm not sure how much more photography I would do, but I draw, I'll draw until the day I die. No, you don't think that you would just be out there taking pictures for fun. Maybe. Yeah. I, and I, I focus more on things that I want to do, but I'm, it wouldn't be the center of my universe. You know, art is always something that'll be the catharsis for me. That'll be something that I need to do. Like it's, it's within, it's ingrained in me. I need to sit down and be able to draw. And that's how, you know, I, I'm able to get certain things out, emotions out or focus or block out the world or, you know, not many artists I know have, uh, well, pretty much all the artists I know have some sort of mental illness in some way or shape or form. So do you think that it's something that all people have and some people just get it talked out of them that sort of creative have to create something or what do you think it is? Because there is obviously as people grow up artists and not artists, but do you think that whenever we're born, we're all artists? Or are there some people who maybe perhaps, because I've, I've thought about this for years and I can't seem to make up my mind either way. And I don't really, it doesn't seem to be a clear answer. I think that there, there are shades of it. I think that some people have the ability to become more creative as far as being able to sit down and do illustrations or like create actual, you know, painting or something like that. No, I don't think anyone is just capable of doing that if taught. Um, I think there are certain things that you're taught that make you better. I think people can be creative in other ways, you know, musicians that can't draw artists that can't be musicians. Um, you know, people that see things visually landscape design people. I mean, people that work in the lawn industry, but can, can visually concept, you know, conceptually visualize how they want to lay out the landscaping and so forth. That's a, a form of creativity and design. I think there's all sorts of levels in, in, in various shades of that, but I do definitely think that there are people out there that can't, conceive of, visualize, draw, uh, you know, do any of that stuff and basically have to rely on, on somebody else to tell them how to make it look. So it's, yeah. It's yeah, it seems like that people were born with creativity inherent in them, but everybody was blessed with like unique gifts in like specific areas. Mm -hmm. Like someone like sometimes people just have a knack for rhythm or a knack for visual pattern or a knack for numbers or something like that, where it's just like, they're just, they somehow just think yeah. that or maybe mechanic, like I'm, I'm mechanically retarded. Like I can't fix a car to save my life. Like mm -hmm. whenever I see the gears and stuff, it just doesn't make sense to me. But I have a friend 
who could, he's so good at it and so natural at it that he could explain it, what he's doing to me and explain it in a way that it makes sense to me. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I can't believe you took this really complicated thing and you're so, you're so uh, confident. It's not like you could just speak to engineers about it. You, you could actually speak to me about it who, had, who knows nothing about mechanics. I'm sure so, like, yeah, people, neurologists could, could give you, you know, better explanations on how the brain is wired and why certain people do certain things. But yeah, absolutely. You look at people that are, uh, uh, you know, a savants or people that, um, you know, at five years old, were able to sit down and play a drum solo. You know, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think people like, uh, you know, like you and me, we definitely are probably more on the, on the visual thinkers, you know, like and it even kind of shows with what you do for a living with doing photography. I mean, you're mm -hmm. still thinking visually, but I think that sometimes people they'll associate this visual thinking or like they'll associate musical thinking with creativity and they'll be like, I can't think visually, therefore I'm not creative. Mm -hmm. And then they're missing out on all of the creativity that could happen with their life because they just think like, oh, I don't mm -hmm. think visually. So I'm not a creative person. And I hear so many people tell yeah. me that like, oh, I'm not creative. I would never be an artist. It's like, I'm thinking, man, you actually probably are like you, you have some sort of genius within you of some sort of natural talent that you were born with that just because you don't think visually doesn't mean that you're not creative. I think that everybody would have to be creative because I think that's just part of basic human function. I think it's, well, what's your end goal? Is it to create something that's beautiful, that, that would be considered artistic, or is it just the outlet of being able to either express yourself or get certain things inside of you, um, you know, emotionally or whatever out into a physical form? I mean, I've seen people's work certain artworks and it's not my place to judge other people's art per se. Uh, but I've definitely seen artwork where I look at that and say, if this person thinks they're creative, then they should go do something else. Yeah. It's crap. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely people who could be very good visual thinkers, but their work isn't creative. I yeah. think what creativity is, it's like you're thinking outside the box, you're arranging things in new ways. And you're finding new solutions to the problems that face you. What's the artistic yeah. value of a Campbell soup can? You know, I, I guess if you go to Warhol, it, he's famous for that, right? He's uh, he becomes a well-known pop artist. He's big in all the right circles, Studio Fifty Four, all that crap. But what is the aesthetic value of a giant painting of a soup Campbell soup can? Is there an aesthetic value there? I don't know. I so dude, there's actually an interesting story with that. So. I really, I think on the surface level, no. And I think that that's what he was trying to do, was trying mm -hmm. to do something that well, I don't think he was maybe even trying to comment on it, um, like have like a, a social commentary. I think that he was like literally just trying to make the most easy thing. I don't really know exactly what he was thinking. I guess, I, you know, I've read his diaries and stuff and all that in his books. So, I mean, you could always, you could hear what somebody says they're thinking, but mm -hmm. you don't really know if that's, if they're telling the truth or not. And I don't know if he was telling the truth. But, um, but one of the interesting or, things or he painted it and then somebody asked him the question and he came with some bullshit answer that sounded so good. That, that was the official answer. You never really know. Yeah. But there, but the cool story about that is though, is that the, now this is something that he didn't talk about, but his family talked about after he died. So he was an immigrant, a Polish immigrant living in the ghetto in Pittsburgh. 
all right? And so he lived in this really poor area, and his dad worked in the factory, and his dad worked in the Heinz ketchup factory. And so they were so poor that whenever they would have tomato soup at night, whenever they would come home, his mom would just put ketchup because his dad would get discount ketchup and cook mm. it with water. Mm. And so if they were doing well financially, they would have Campbell's tomato soup. So mm. Campbell's tomato soup to them was the symbol of ultimate luxury because it was like, we are actually doing well, well enough financially where we don't have to have ketchup soup anymore. And this is something that he never said publicly, but his brother said after he died. Okay. And so whether he had made that conscious decision or not, subconsciously at least on that level, that that can symbolize moving up in the world and becoming more wealthy to him, which blew my mind whenever I found out about that. That's that interesting. It, okay, I didn't know that. That's interesting. And so he would also go to these this Catholic church and his mom would take him to mass every single day. And if you look at the Catholic church that he went to, the, the iconography that they would have on the walls are almost exactly how the Marilyn Monroe paintings, they were kind of like these off colored, weird, they weren't like very well painted. And it almost kind of looked like, 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 silver yeah. like they had like these gold, the gold backgrounds, mm. uh, the gold leaf backgrounds, but the, but they had like these weird high contrast, almost like sloppy sort of saints that were painted mm. on them. And they were just all over the whole entire church. And so he would go see that every day. And then he would go, have this experience whenever he would have these soup cans where it would be like this is we're eating good today it's no longer ketchup water and so like combining that like iconography with this with this mass media product that uh, this mass consumer product that he's seen that maybe it doesn't say enough about the culture but it says something about the person who created it you know and that that uh it reveals a little interesting story about him if you uh, read the, the books and stuff, which there's also a really crazy documentary on it. Every time, almost every time we do a long road trip, we're like, let's go listen to some long documentaries. And uh, we, we did it one time on the way to Austin. We listened to it. It's like a four hour, four part documentary on YouTube about Andy Warhol. Hmm. But, uh, they talk about, uh, they talk, his brother talks about that part with the Campbell soup can, but man, yeah, his, his life was, was it's kind of a tragedy too because he was born really really poor mm -hmm. and he ended up dying with 800 million dollars of assets of just you know being incredibly wealthy but he was just still so lonely and didn't like you know like you said those creative people always have that that something yeah. fucked up in their head and you know it's like all that money in the world still didn't buy him like the love that he was looking for or the happiness that he was looking mm -hmm. for. And he was still just kind of like, man, I just kind of feel lonely. Like he got to enjoy life and do all these amazing things. But at the end, he still kind of felt lonely and he kind of felt paranoid and like everybody was using him for his money. And, um, and uh, it's, it's really, honestly, it's kind of a sad story. <laughs> well, I think a lot of artistic stories uh, are sad stories because I think a lot of people get into it for, you know, emotional reasons or emotional release reasons, or they bring some sort of mental illness. And I don't know if that has to do with how the brain is wired. You know, certain people that have that sort of artistic ability also bring with them this sort of other issues and so forth. But yeah, it's, it's interesting how a lot of uh, artists sort of uh, have sad stories like that. Yeah. I mean, Basquiat, Jesus, that's a tragedy mm -hmm. as well. I mean, he died so young who knows what type of potential he could have had i mean andy warhol died in the 60s but still i mean if he could have lived longer who knows what he would have done i don't know how old boscott was when he died 
But I mean, is uh, when he in his early thirties? Yeah, something like that. Like like way 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 too young. And 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 Van Gogh dying so young. I think that that image of the of the tortured artist is something that that shouldn't be the stereotype. You know, like there should be ways. Yeah. There should be outlets to where people have where there's not like people aren't looked down on for making a living off of their art because they need to live. They need to be able to find a way to make money off of it so they can live long enough to enjoy their life and to sort through the things that they want to and to raise a family or do whatever it is that they want to do with them, their life as opposed to like being so messed up in the head and not having the support or not whether it be mentally or financially or physically or whatever the support may be to where they'll end up, you know, taking their own lives or something like that at a young age. It's very prevalent in, in people that are artistic and creative. It just seems very prevalent in that. And you almost wonder if it's like a chicken or egg kind of thing. Does the, uh, some of the mental illness issues cause the art artisticness or vice versa, or is it just a coincidence or man? I mean, it seems like that a lot of times the problem isn't necessarily with the individual, but with the system that they, that society expects the individual to work with it, you know, because like, I really believed that there was no place in the world for me. And I kind of had that like tortured artist feel for a very long time until I had some people that taught me about business. And I started to, and like, whenever I was able to like pay my own bills, I started to feel like, oh, wow, maybe that there's, and, and pay my own bills in a way that where I was like, I was doing what I love. I started to feel like, oh, it wasn't something that was wrong with me. Like I, I was so convinced that like I was broken or there was something wrong with me or like that, that, that maybe I was a, not a good person or something because like somehow I couldn't figure out a way to do it. And I think that is like people that could be like, but that just means that that person is different and that they don't fit into the box as easily as everybody else. So they don't stand in the line as easy as everybody else. I don't think that that means that there's something wrong with the person. I think that there's something wrong with the society that expects that person to go in line and stand in that box oh, like yeah. everybody else. And that if, if there's more people out there who tell their story of like, look, I did this and I found a way I'm a creative person. I have trouble thinking in the same way that everybody else does or behaving in the same way that everybody else does. I found a way to do it and more people share their story and help other people find ways to think outside the box and live outside the box in these new creative ways that that will happen less and less. But mm -hmm. it's whatever people are somehow convinced sometimes by their own family that it's like, there's something wrong with you. Why can't you just be like your brother? Why can't you just be like the, all the other kids in your class? You know, and I feel like that happens sometimes where, and that's what, that's what will bring the kids out to the streets where they'll, you know, want to go out and do something that they shouldn't be doing because it's like they don't feel like they have a place in regular society yeah no I, I, we don't take mental illness seriously we don't take drug addiction seriously uh you know there's a lot of things in the society that we don't take seriously that are not only causes for bigger things in society but you know are incredibly painful for families and i mean a lot of artists i think get into drugs uh, a lot of artists you know have uh depression issues um and not just you know, uh, painters and illustrators and graffiti artists and so forth, but, you know, musicians, poets, writers, uh, people of all sorts of creative, creative outlets. Like I said, I don't personally know any artist that doesn't have some sort of mental illness. I'm sure there are, are completely 100% happy artists out there that have no 
mental illness issues and they're perfectly content and everything's rosy. I don't know them, but I don't know one either, bro. I don't. Dude, so speaking of poets, I've been thinking about something recently. And uh, so we were talking about how graffiti is becoming big. You know, it's like it's mm-hmm. it's become one of the world's most popular art forms. So, I, you know, like I, I was whenever I was in Florence, I was really studying like how painters were like kind of just shit on throughout the history until the Renaissance. And it's like they went from like the lowest, just like an ordinary, like a, a repair man to like the coolest celebrity that you could possibly be. And like they went to the top of the hierarchy in a matter of like a couple decades. And now it's like everybody wants to be a painter now. But mm-hmm. still throughout all of art history, the poet has been the most shit on person out of all of the art, all the, out of all the creative ven- venues or like the creative avenues you could take. The poet was like the one that like got the paid the least. And there was even a part where Picasso had a friend with a poet and he met him and he was like, and he's like, what are you good? The painter's like, what are you doing? Uh, uh, his friend was like, what are you doing, Picasso? He's like, oh, I'm a painter. He's like, oh, man, you didn't uh, choose a good career. And then Picasso says, what do you do? He says, I'm a poet. He said, and you think I've picked a bad career. He said, you're never going to make any money. So, like, poets have always just been so shit on. But now it's so weird because you have the rappers, which are essentially poets. Yeah. They're the coolest art form out of all. Like, they are the highest out of, like, all of the more people want to be rappers than they want to be any other type of artist out of all, like in the world right now. Like if you say, do you want to be a rock star? Do you want to be a painter? Do you want to be this or that? All the kids are like, most of the kids are like, I want to be a rapper. You know, I want to be like that. I want to be in that. Cause like they kind of could combine the fashion with the mm-hmm. music, with the art and the poetry and they combine all of it. But at the core of it all, it's somehow poetry. And I'm like, Hell yeah, man. Somehow the, the rappers found a way to bring poetry to the very tippy top of the pinnacle. I bet mm-hmm. if there was a way for all of the poets throughout history to like look back, look forward on that and see that, that'd probably make them really happy to see that somehow poetry found its place and is actually like at the pinnacle of where it could be in culture where everybody seems to just poetry yeah. has a voice it's now. That much moment. Yeah. No, I think it's, I, I mean, definitely poetry goes back a long ways. I mean, uh, Dante and I mean I think when I think of like modern poetry and so I, I think of like Poe and then I think of the beatniks and uh, I definitely think poetry is having its moments there's definitely uh, a, a, a line between good poetry and bad poetry you go to any like uh, Greenwich Village coffee house slam poetry reading and you're bound to hear something that <laughs> you're just laughing at um, <laughs> But, you know, it's, it's the same as painting. It's the creative outlet. It's the expressiveness of it. It's some, some is going to be aesthetically pleasing or audio, uh, you know, um, audio, audio, I don't know what it auditory is. Please. I don't know. Auditory, there we go. Sorry, I couldn't think of the word. <laughs> auditory uh, pleasing, you know, and it's some's going to, you're not going to relate to, you're not going to like, you know, I'm not a big fan. I'll be perfectly honest. I'm not a big fan of current hip hop and so forth. I still listen to stuff from the 90s. Um, yeah. I mean, those I are the people. The '90s were the people who made it famous, though. You know, mm-hmm. like they were the, and it really was. I mean, I at least I think it was. I don't know if I'm misinterpreting it, but it really does seem to me like, like at the core of it all, it's poetry, and they found a way to merge it with the music, and then they merged it with the fashion, and the art started coming into it later on, and it's like the music, the fashion, and the art somehow made this form of like hyper poetry where it combined all these different art forms to where now 
it's like the way that the graffiti is now being merged with this concept art where they're starting to take these different con like these different mediums and blend them together to form like super mediums that uh like it's like elevating the medium to a whole different level and and i think that's happening a lot just because like the internet and people mm -hmm. would see this idea that they would have never seen before and be like oh i want to add that in with what i'm doing it's very yeah everything's become very uh visual and oriented so even if you have the music you got to have visuals that match that and uh you know, it's, it's just kind of um, overwhelming, I think, uh, for your senses, uh, everything that's being produced now. And I think that a lot of it is um, a reflection of advertising, the advertising industry. I think a lot of it is reflective of the Internet and our need to have things immediate. Uh, we need to constantly be stimulated and we can't have anything that lasts more than five seconds because we have no attention span. Um, so I think that that's going to continue. Uh it's not just the music. It's going to be the fashion. It's going to be the visuals. It's going to be the image itself. I would even argue that a lot of these people nowadays don't really have talent, that a lot of it is just the visual, the um, personality that surrounds them, um, that kids find appealing and they want to be cool. So they say, oh, yeah, I listen to the music, too. And the music's trash. Yeah, I mean, I think there's such a thing as like an industry plant where someone says, here's this person who we could pop in, plug and play, we'll put these type of clothes on them, tell them to say these type of things, put this type of beat, put this type of car in the background, put these type of girls in. And as long as that sells, this person has a job and they'll and they'll promote that person that and to the public and be like, oh, look at this artist. He's so smart. I can't believe he found a way to bring all these things together. But there's yeah. like this industry that's just making all this money off it and it's like oh he's out boom throw the next person in hey oh, yeah. you're, gonna this. you're gonna say this and i feel like that happens and a lot of times that you if especially if you're young and you don't know that that's how the industry works it's like mm -hmm. you don't you might not know that 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 person is being told to say these certain things he's told the things he's not allowed to say he's given the clothes that he's wearing he didn't pick out those clothes for himself he's he's been put yeah. that from advertisement well, that's Definitely. nothing new. Yeah, I mean, the history of pop music is that. I mean, uh, the monkeys, you got two actors and two musicians. You know, it, it's always been that way. I mean, uh, we've always kind of cast our heroes and our villains uh, throughout history, throughout literature. Um, you know, we sort of take the bits that we like and we discard the bits that we don't. And uh, Robert Wool did a great series on HBO. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Um, where he did a, like a, a lecture series at, I think it was Columbia or NYU, one of them. And uh, he talked about history being pop culture and how we sort of cast our celebrities and, um, you know, and how we sort of turn what he called the Liberty Valance effect, where uh, when legend becomes the fact, print the legend. You know, when so legend becomes what? the legend becomes the fact, print the legend. Um, so, you know, we sort of cast the characters on, on what we want and how we want to see them, not necessarily what they are. And, you know, in a pop music and in popular culture, it's like plug and play. You know, the pretty blonde girl uh, may not, may have enough talent to get by and we'll just throw her in, give her a couple songs that were written by other people. She makes a couple hit singles, makes enough money, toss her out and we'll get somebody new. It's, you know, it's, how Hollywood works, it's how the music industry works, and it's a shame.
you know, it, it's also how the art world works. You got people and trends in the art world, uh, you know, pop, uh, pop art will be high, you know, right now. And then it'll go to some other art form at some point, Western art will be high again or something. Um, it's all transitory and it all, all moves. Um, and it all comes back around again at some point. So I, I, I think that just because, uh, you know, one form is popular now doesn't necessarily mean that's where it's going to go. There's going to be some sort of shift again at some point in time. We saw uh, Nirvana is a good example of that when the music industry was all hair metal bands and it was just getting to be really awful. Hair metal, lousy metal music and everything. Nirvana came along and completely changed the industry and everything turned to grunge. Um, so every once in a while, there is that giant shift and we need that in the world we need people like that yeah it's weird that seems like that's kind of what is happening with the art world as far as um with how people were looking at all of the pieces that were being sold at christie's and so the bees mm -hmm. and then after banksy it's like there's this new sort of era of artists that they're type trying to look for where it's like but now it's almost like i wonder if there's going to be that sort of plug and play with the with the big art world where it's like hey this graffiti artist is starting to come up now maybe we could start to promote him and make some money off of him because most of the money is made from the secondhand market anyways and so like i wonder i haven't seen that happen yet at least not from what i've been looking for but i wonder if that's something that could be happening in the future where you have on one hand a giant industry that's looking for that next artist to just Hey, wear this, say this, paint this, bring this to this auction. You're going to make a lot of money. But meanwhile, they're making most of the money. And then the second that they make all their money and that artist doesn't hop, bang, you're out the door and the artist is left with nothing. Yeah. And you also have a whole generation of artists who are like, I'm going to get into this career just so I could be like that person who's on TV, not even knowing that it's all a facade. Because I feel like that's kind of what's happening with rap too is like so many people want to be rappers but they don't even know that most of the rappers are broke. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's going to happen with, with like the fine art where it's like the graffiti with graffiti. I mean, I don't, do you foresee anything like that happening or do you yeah, think there's, that? there's always the Vanguard, the trail trailblazers, the trendsetters, and there's always the followers and the, the people that bring up, you know, the ride, the coattails and so forth like that. Graffiti has seen that, um, you know, going from the infancy in the eighties, to what I would consider uh, sort of the renaissance of the 90s when graffiti really got elevated to the next level um, to what we see nowadays, which is some really professional productions, people that are just really good at 3D effect, have classical painting backgrounds and so forth like that. It's really been elevated. So that's why I'm saying like right now, it, we're really, graffiti is really the added zenith. But at some point in time, it's going to run its course and something else is going to come up in its place. Um, I think the I was reading the other day that speaking of Basquiat, um, I think one of his paintings just sold for like the most amount ever. I remember probably 20 years ago, we were talking about how uh, Impressionist paintings, you know, Monet's and, and Monet's and things like that it, were going for unbelievable amounts of money. And now it's, you know, the Basquiat, it's, it's um you know, the Pollocks, it's, uh, it's sort of changed uh, styles and direction. And then at some point again, it'll change. 
So I think right now graffiti's at its high. Um, I think it'll it'll sort of run its course, and then in twenty years people will rediscover it again, and it'll be up again. Um, so I think for those of us, I'm sorry, you can continue. Well, oh, I was just saying, I think for those of us that have been around that that are really into it, we're going to continue to do what we do for the reasons we do it for, and if people like it, they like it. If they don't, they don't. Uh, I don't think graffiti is really going to, as an art form, is really going to fade. I just think the public's interest and the you know, popular culture's interest will wax and wane, you know, as yeah. whatever the trend is. Yeah, it's, I think it's healthy for an artist to not get too carried away with what's trendy. Um, uh, Rick Rubin has a good quote that I heard in an interview with him recently is like, because the interviewer was asking him, like, how do you develop, you know, how do you tell an artist what they should make? And he says, well, it's like food. If you try a food and you say that food doesn't taste good to me and someone else says, no, you should like that food. Are you going to change your opinion about whether that food tastes good to you? Yeah. That's how art should be. The art that you should make is the stuff that tastes good to you, not what everybody says should taste good. And I think that that's a good way to think about it. And it really, it really opened my eyes to that. I'm like, that is because like sometimes it's really easy to get skewed is like this person made a lot of money from doing this sort of thing this mm -hmm. thing's really popular right now so maybe i'll do that without even considering do i like it or not you know like worried about do people like me before i even worry about do i like them well and that's I, why it runs its courses because people get so tired of the same shit over and over again but i mean it goes full circle back to what you were talking about as far as uh how much of yourself do you want to sell out commercially to be economically viable to make money Hopefully as little as possible. <laughs> well, that's the hope, right? I mean, but the truth is we all do it. If we're going to do this to make money, to be able to fund the stuff we want to do, we're all going to sell out at some point, at some level, at some time. What so, exactly was the renaissance of the 90s? Because I wanted to go back to that. Yeah, so that was really when they were taking the early stuff of, the, uh, of graffiti, which was, you know, it was a lot of block letters in the beginning, bubble letters, and then it sort of worked into kind of a, the early infancy of what was called wild style, but the nineties was really when you saw a lot of artists that had, um, that weren't just the kids learning this stuff that may or may not had, you know, uh, artistic backgrounds to where you started seeing, um, college educated artists and, and people, especially like in Europe with guys like Dane and so forth, that brought a lot of 3d perspective into graffiti and where graffiti really went from a lot of, uh, I don't want to say die cut, but a lot of very similar looking uh, artists and styles to really a vast, wide, uh, kind of an explosion of different styles, of different forms, uh, like the 3D stuff that wasn't really a classic wild style, they incorporated like letters that would twist and bend and then were colored to be 3D. Um, a lot of artists in Europe, especially blowing up, it, it really took graffiti was the first uh, part, you know, or the first moment in time where it took graffiti from an infancy to the explosion and elevated it from down here way up to here. You know, so the 90s was really that that big jump start. It was basically like, uh, let's say, the electric guitar, you know? Yeah, yeah. So the electric guitar definitely brought out a lot of new possibilities with the guitar that you just couldn't do before. And do you think it was something with a new type of spray paint that was coming out? Or what do you think could have caused all of that 
new it style. Was, I think it was the gen, the second generation of artists. The first generation uh, wanted to do graffiti and set out to do graffiti for a certain. It was basically for the fame. It was to get your name out there is because, you know, you had a bunch of, of kids that really had nothing to do with their time and wanted to be somebody in a world that told them they weren't. So they went out and did it for one particular reason. Then you had guys like myself um, that kind of came in in that second generation that saw what the first generation was doing, took that and then elevated. We brought in, you know, uh, like I said, more artistic backgrounds, different backgrounds, um, artistic uh education, college education, guys with design degrees, guys with architectural degrees. Um, it really was seeing what this was doing and then really elevating it to the, the, the next level to, to where it, what we're starting to see now came from. What we see nowadays, as far as the level of graffiti art and uh, the styles and the, the complicated imagery and coloring and stuff that we were talking about stemmed more from the 90s than it did from the 80s. Um, even though the 80s is where it started, what we see nowadays really, uh, really came from the, the 90s artists. What, where do you think that it'll go next? I, I, I think we're going to continue to see kind of a melting of uh, the street art with the graffiti art. Um, I think we're going to continue to see a lot more stencil based art. Um, and I think that uh, graffiti, the lettering and so forth, is going to get to the point where it's even more abstract. Uh, you know, where instead of seeing the lettering yourself, uh, you know, where the letters are colored and it stands out different from the background, we're starting to see styles where the letters are incorporated into the background. Or, um, you know, instead of being able to actually even read the letters, it's more just an abstract flowing of, uh, you know, of shapes. And, um, and and things like that. So I think it's going to continue to get more abstract. I think it's going to continue to get uh, more complicated. Um, and I think it's going to continue to build popularity up until we reach a point where people just get tired of it. Um, but we're going to continue to see murals. Uh, we're going to see bigger uh, murals. We're going to continue to see graffiti and advertising in hip hop culture, which is hip hop culture always stemmed from graffiti. Anyways, it was, hip hop graffiti and break dancing, which was the, you know, the kind of the triad in the early eighties where each one kind of influenced the other. Um, and as hip hop continues to grow, we'll consider, continue to see graffiti as part of that. Um, but at some point it's going to, uh, to take a backseat to the next, whatever art it's going to be. Yeah. Then only the real OGs are going to be left after, the hype goes away. Only the real, the serious people who are the real deal are going to stick around and keep doing it. <laughs> people are because they love it. Yeah, the interesting thing is too now, graffiti artists, the guys that started this stuff back in the the late seventies and eighties, are now uh, my grandparents' age are now starting to die from things of natural causes, heart attacks, and so forth. So we're actually losing the first generation of graffiti artists now. Um, mm. Guys like myself. Uh, you know, that started painting in the nineties and so forth. We're now in our mid mid forties to mid fifties. So it, it's really the next generation uh, that's coming up. That's, that's where it's going to be. What are these kids learning? What are we teaching these kids in school? Um, and, and I'm not just speaking from an artistic perspective. I'm speaking of a cultural perspective, a societal perspective, political perspective. You know, what are we teaching the next generation and, and what are we going to leave behind when we get older? You know, so, I mean, with 
with what is going on with the kids of this generation, I mean, depending on how you look at it, it seems like that the world could be at an all-time high as far as world tension goes between countries, individuals within the countries, different sides politically and things like that. Do you think that is part of what's causing the graffiti to have more of a political and social commentary? And that if uh, something like a World War Three were to happen, that it would really lead, like the street art would really, really lean in that direction? Or like that, that what role do you think graffiti is going to play or in the grand scheme of things with as far as like the changing of ways of the, how the world works with all the tension and all this these political things going on, all these big changes making going on with these countries at war with each other. I mean, because Banksy did the the series of paintings at the wall between Israel and Palestine, mm-hmm. where he went down there and did uh, his commentary paintings on that. And you know, like he was like, "I'm not going to go cater to the 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 auction houses. I'm going to go make art where I think it's going to be." the like i guess the biggest meaning in the world as far as like political or social commentary but what but what do you think aside from him you know for what the younger generations do you think I'm not that sure that's how much, much i'm not sure how much art uh really affects politics uh, it certainly can mirror it and so forth but you know there's always been a, a link between graffiti and uh and politics and policies i mean going back to people doing graffiti and, you know, during the Roman empire, uh, or, um, you know, you could see scribblings on the walls and things like that. that weren't done in spray paint. They were done in paint, but, uh, you know, the French revolution, all sorts of things, you know, you would see, uh, messages and so forth reflect the current political climate. Um, I'm not sure that I'm really not sure. Honestly, I think that, there is a role to play. I think that, like I said, art mirrors what we see. There are a lot of artists and a lot of people that don't agree with what's going on politically. I think that you'll continue to see that people are always going to express their dissatisfaction. Um, things that they see are wrong. Um, I think that one really good thing that we've seen in the last 20 years has been the, um, the openness and acceptance of the LGBTQ community. Um, whereas, you know, prior to that, it was definitely, uh, many people were still in the closet. It wasn't as accepted as it was. The art, um, has been, I think, reflective of that as well, where you see a lot more LGBTQ, not only artists, designers, things like that, that are not only expressing themselves that are out, but also carrying themes, uh, LGBTQ themes and so forth. So I think we'll continue to see stuff like that. I think that art is a great way to um, to get out that sort of catharsis with things that you don't agree with, the things that you think are wrong, but as far as it influencing politics and so forth, I don't think the decision makers, we are the ones to blame if we're putting these decision makers into roles of power. And I don't think the decision makers really give a shit what the artists think. They care who fills their pockets. And yeah. I, I, I think I agree with that. I think that really the art is, uh, an outlet for the oppressed, you know, yeah. and it's a, it could be an outlet of expression and and also inspiration for people 
to where it's like maybe something to rally behind to get to help people to help people think about things in different ways to help people see things in a new light help people think outside the box or to help people maybe form senses of community in their area and i think that 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 that's one of the great things that art really could do for people you know and, and i don't think that it's necessarily it, that it's made really to convince the government of certain things, but maybe it's made to convince the people of certain things, you know? Uh, yeah. Or maybe it's just their way of saying, here's what I think is wrong, whether I can convince somebody else or not. Funny enough, uh, you know, you, you can look at decision. We talked about how decision makers don't really give a shit what the artists think. And I think that's overall true. I don't think they, like we talked about, I think most of the artists, that are doing these political statements are the more of the marginalized uh, parts of society. But George Bush, uh, have you ever seen his paintings? He's actually not a bad painter, but he doesn't <laughs> paint anything political. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you seen Hunter Biden's paintings? He's just like paints dogs and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Have you, have you seen uh, Hunter Biden's paintings? Are they pretty, are they all like all coked up, uh, crazy trippy stuff or they do, they, they actually are mean? some pretty trippy stuff. Yeah. They, uh, they, I, I honestly think that they're pretty cool looking. Are they? <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. some stuff that you definitely have to take some drugs to come up with. I'm just kidding. I mean, I don't really know, but well, uh, no, here's the thing. Maybe he takes the drugs because he does have issues he's trying to deal with. And that's why he's an artist. You know, I mean, you don't know. Yeah, but he does make some pretty cool paintings. Yeah, it's weird. There, there are, uh, you know, like that. No matter what your position in life, whether you're someone in a position of power or whether you're someone who, who maybe is a position where you feel more on the oppressed side, that that there's some people who are just called to to the visual expression of whatever it is that they're feeling. I mean, even Sylvester Stallone was talking about. Like he makes paintings, Jim Carrey makes paintings and, and they're, they're like, this is my way of dealing with stuff from mm -hmm. being rich and famous of the problems that that comes out with. And so it's like, no matter where, what type of life that you have or where you come from, I think that, you know, there's nobody who could say like, oh, that's not for me because I grew up this way or, oh, that's not for mm -hmm. me. Like, I think that if it's something that you would want to try, then there's no excuse to not do it. And those guys do it for the purest form because they don't need the money. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, that is probably the, the best form that you could do it for is just a way to express yourself and to enjoy it. And, and hopefully if you do it to make money, that you'll find a way to do it and keep the most amount of creative freedom as you possibly can. <laughs> as long as you can live with yourself, I guess. Yeah. Who knows? Oh yeah. <laughs> well, where do people uh, follow you at and see your work? So I'm still working on the website. So I would say right now the best place is just hit me up on Instagram. It's at curse one five one two, and that's a uh, curse o n e one at five, uh, curse one five uh, five one two. And just hit me up on Instagram and uh, check out some of my work there. I'm still working on the website and uh, I upgrade, uh, update um, projects and, and paintings as I can. Um, so, and then I'll be working on some books and um, just some other projects as I, as I can. So. Oh yeah, dude. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that book whenever it comes out too. You're gonna have to let me know where that comes out. Cause absolutely, man. I'll send you a free copy. Absolutely. I'm excited about that. 
Well, Evan, I appreciate you coming on today. I appreciate you talking with me. No, man, it's it's fun, man. I, I enjoy these. I had fun the last time. This one's been fun too. So, oh yeah, it was good talking to you. I'll see you later. Thank right. you, brother. Take care. Bye, everybody.